0: My name is Mike Miller, and I'm part of the teaching team here at LCC, and uh, I believe in the power and the sovereignty of God, and I believe that he's going to keep those translation packs working for the next hour while I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> so. so, we've been talking about um, the book of Daniel, and uh, when, when I was first asked to speak, in the, during this section, I was all excited because I thought, oh, the book of Daniel. It's one of my favorite books in the, in the Old Testament because I remember when we, were, uh, when we were raising our kids, when our kids were real little, we had this um, like kid's Bible and we would read them stories at night and uh, what, some of their favorites were in the book of Daniel because you thought, oh, well, there's some cool stories in here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Bendigo, Daniel and the Den of Lions, so I was all excited about, you know, getting to teach on this book. And then Tom came to me and he said, Yeah, we need someone to teach on Daniel chapter 8. And so I looked at Daniel chapter 8 and I went, Okay. Because if you look at the book of Daniel, the first, the first like, six chapters are all like those stories that we always hear about Daniel. And then the last half of the book, is all it gets a little weird. But, um, and so I read Daniel chapter 8 and I was like, okay, it's all about goats with horns sticking out of their heads and rams running at each other and things like this. And then when I really started getting into it, when I really started studying it, I was like, okay, there's, there's a lot of cool stuff here. Um, so uh, I'm just warning you this morning that you can't study Daniel chapter 8 Without involving a lot of history, um, because it's it's basically a book about what's going to happen, what what was going to happen to the people of Israel while they were in their captivity. So yes, there's going to be a couple maps and a couple pictures. So um, before the, before we get to that, though, I, uh, remember that we're talking about Daniel and the, the kind of the summary of the book of Daniel is the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. So that's kind of a summary of what we've been talking about in this book. So, but um, before we get to that, I was, I was having my quiet time and I was reading through the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, I, I, I like reading the historical books of the Old Testament, but they kind of have a fairly consistent theme. The, the theme is that God promises the people of Israel, He said, if you're obedient if you do uh, my commands and you don't start worshiping the gods of the people uh, all around you, then I'm going to bless you. I will be with you. And I will be your God and you will be my people. But if you start worshiping those other gods, you're going to have to pay the price, basically. And that's what I was reading in 1 Samuel chapter 12. This is right after uh, the... Saul became king, and everybody was like, oh, no problem, we're going we're gonna to love you, Lord God, we're going to put you first, we just want a king like all the other nations around them. God gave them a king, he gave them Saul, and he said this, if you fear the Lord, and you serve and obey him, and don't rebel against his commands, if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his command, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. And guess what? Uh, Everything started out okay, but it didn't take very long for the people to start turning away from God. And then God brought about what he said he was going to bring about. Um, Ultimately, what happened was, you know, Israel was divided into two parts, the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom did not have a single good king. There was not a single godly king in the northern kingdom. And so God allowed the Assyrians to come in. And in uh, 721 BC, uh, the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom. And it was what God said was going to happen. The southern kingdom of Judah wasn't much better. They had a couple godly kings in there. You've heard of them, Hezekiah, Josiah. And God allowed them to exist a little longer until 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came in. And that's where we are in the book of Daniel, uh, the Babylonian captivity. God brought punishment on his people, just like he warned them. But you know what? They never stopped being his people. He never stopped loving them. Uh, He never stopped having a plan for them. Uh, And ultimately, he was going to bring about their redemption. And as we continue in Daniel next week, we'll see... Uh, that the Babylonian captivity was, had a specific timeline. It was going to last 70 years, and um, after that time, God would redeem his people and bring them back to Jerusalem from captivity. Uh, God's sovereign plan for his people was not thwarted by anything. Uh, God had a plan. He was going to do it, and uh, no matter what the people did, he was going to bring about his His work. So now, up till now, we've looked at uh, Daniel chapters 1 through 7, uh, which is mainly a historical narrative, like I said. Now, starting last week in Daniel chapter 7, we saw a shift uh, from these stories to what we call apocalyptic literature. Um, it's, more, it's more visionary and prophetic. It's kind of like when you read the book of Revelation. That's apocalyptic literature. Um, and there's another change that happens when we start chapter eight, although we don't see it. Chapters one through seven were all written in the original language, they were written in Aramaic, which was the language of all the people of Mesopotamia. So everybody could understand it. Now, starting in chapter eight, the language shifts and it's written in Hebrew. The rest of the book of Daniel is all written in Hebrew. So we get from that that maybe this what what follows is meant more for the people of Israel. Uh, It it was directed toward them. Um, So let's do this, let's let's read. And I just kinda have to read through this, okay? So bear with me. Um, You notice it starts out, in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. Remember King Belshazzar? In chapter five, he was the guy who, you know, the hand stuck out of the wall and started writing on the wall and remember what happened to him, okay? But so this, this is before this happened. We estimated it was about 12 years before. So this is the, the uh, prophecy, okay? So let's just read through this. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. And I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but it grew up later. Now I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. And no animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did it as, as it pleased and became great." And I was thinking about this, and suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it, The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of the rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it it prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it'll take 2300 evenings and mornings and then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. I told you it was weird. <laughs> but, but as we study this, we're gonna see it's, it's, the amazing thing about this chapter is you have this, this weird prophecy, but right after it comes the interpretation. And it's, it's a very clear interpretation. Um, uh, the, whole, the whole meaning is explained. So, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of break this down. So this is where the interpretation comes about, okay? While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard the man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, and he touched me and raised me to my feet. And he said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of the wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes is the first king. Okay, do you remember, do you remember in chapter 5 uh, when we talked about the, the hand sticking out of the wall? Remember that uh, Belshazzar was told by what was written on the wall, he was told, uh, your kingdom has come to an end and it's going to be handed over to the Medes and Persians. Okay? And that's what, and it says, that night, uh, Belshazzar was killed and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. So this prophecy was fulfilled. So <clears throat> this is the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. And there's going to be a test at the end, okay? <laughs> so um, the, the, the medo persian Empire is also called the Achaemenid Empire. Empire. And it was kind it kind of started with the Medes, but they were not as strong as the uh, Persians who rose up later. Remember, there was a horn coming out of the, the head of the ram, but then later a bigger horn came out and the smaller horn went away. So the smaller horn is the Medes and then the Persians. So you can see up there to the right. You see uh, right kind of in the middle there is Darius I. So that's kind of where this whole thing starts taking place. Uh, about 12, So the prophecy was about 12 years before. Then, around 330 BC, this whole empire was conquered by this guy, uh, Alexander the Great. So this is the Greek king. This is the, the goat with the prominent horn that stuck up, and uh, that represented Alexander. Uh, and you read the accounts, uh, it says that it's like a goat whose feet never touch the ground, right? That talks about the speed of Alexander's conquest. It was like he never, he, he moved so fast. Um, he started his military conquests in 336 BC, and in 323 he died. He was 32 years old when he died. Um, and by the time Alexander died, uh, he, had con- he had conquered most of the known world. So this is kind of a cool mosaic that was found in Pompeii, and that's Alexander and his, his beloved horse, Bucephalus. <laughs> he loved that horse so much that he named a city after him, and that city is now in what's now Pakistan. Um, but that's Bucephalus, the horse. Um, actually, I'll, I'll show you. The, this is the area that Alexander conquered. All of, from all the way over in Greece and Egypt, all the way to the border of India. Just in those, by the time he died when he was 32. Well, actually, we're not, we're not really sure that Alexander died. I should... Because after, after uh, a conquest, he drank a bowl of wine about this big. He just downed a whole bowl of wine. And for some reason, he didn't wake up the next day. <laughs> but, but the weird thing is um, that, uh, you know, he's out on the battlefield with his, with his uh, army, and they noticed that he didn't decay. Like, for the first week he was dead, he didn't decay. So they were all like... Th- at that point, they thought he was a god... So, uh, because, because he wasn't decaying. So finally, after about a week, they decided, well, we better call over the surgeons and the physicians and we better embalm him so we can take him back to, to Greece. But mo- mo- modern scientists think the reason he didn't decay is because he wasn't actually dead, <laughs> that he was basically in a coma. He, was, he wasn't really dead, he was just mostly dead. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, so they uh, this, this is probably the first. So they probably actually killed him while they were embalming him. So uh, this is one of the first documented medical errors <laughs> that ever occurred. So, but that's kind of cool. But at at his death, the empire would not be the same uh, because uh, Alexander Alexander's wife had a, was pregnant, but uh, it was believed that the child was illegitimate. Alexander had a brother who was like mentally insane, so who would take over the empire? So uh, as a result the empire was fought over by his generals Uh, and over the next 50 years they fought over this empire and one would take control and then the other would take control and You remember remember that the goat had the big horn and then that horn was broken off and then four other horns grew up in its place. So these four generals uh, kind of took over. And um, ultimately, after a bunch of wars and, and succeeding kings, the situation was kind of a mess. There was a group of kings that controlled the Holy Land uh, called the Seleucids. And um, the Seleucid kings ended up owing a lot of money uh, because they had borrowed a lot of money to do their wars. And uh, they borrowed a lot of money from this, this growing power way in the West uh, called the Romans. Um, and they ultimately had to pay them back. And so when a government owes a lot of money, what do they do? Well, they tax people and they raid the, uh, the temples. And there was this one king, uh, a Seleucid king named Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, he would become, for the Jews, one of the most hated men in their history. Um, and, that, and that's what we read about, um, how this new king would be raised up. And uh, he was really hated by the Jews. His desire was to make Jerusalem into a Hellenistic showcase. So they were trying to Hellenize the empire. Hellenize means to turn it into Greece, basically. To bring Greek culture, Greek language in. And um, so the first thing he did was he built a gymnasium next to the temple. Now when I say gymnasium, I don't really mean uh, a planet fitness, right? (laughs) There was no weightlifting or anything going on. Because the word gymnasium in Greek comes from the word gymnos, which means naked. (laughs) And so there were a lot of naked people at the gymnasium, right? And the Jews didn't really dig that. It wasn't part of their culture, and so they, they hated that. And the other thing he did was he built an altar in the temple to himself. He built an altar in the temple to Zeus, and he sacrificed pigs on that altar. You can see how the Jews actually absolutely hated him, okay? Um, and you, if you want to read more about this, you know, it's really interesting. If you want to read how that all ended... You just need to get a copy of the Apocrypha or get yourself a, a Catholic Bible has the Apocrypha in it and read the book of First and Second Maccabees and that will tell you all about how the Jews raised up and they rebelled against Antiochus Epiphanes. And um, it's also interesting in there because you can learn about the, the origin of the Jewish holiday Hanukkah. Uh, that's in there too and it's all based on this. But anyway, that's, that's enough history, I think. Um, the amazing thing about Daniel chapter 8 is the precision in which the prophecies are made. You see these horns, you see these horns falling off and four more horns uh, growing. Gabriel explained exactly every aspect of the vision uh, and what it was going to mean. Now, none of this was good news, right? Right? Uh, when when uh, this prophecy came forth, it wasn't like they prophesied, "Oh, this is going to be wonderful for you guys. You're going to get back to Jerusalem, and you, this going to just be great and wonderful." And uh, no, these were not words of encouragement for the Jewish people um, about all he was going to do for them. In fact, they were warnings about what was going to happen for the Israel people, Israeli people. You remember last week, Tom talked in chapter seven about the four beasts. And one of the points he made was that every beast seemed to be worse than the one before it. Um, they just kept getting worse. Um, but they do emphasize the idea that God knew exactly what was going to happen. And that's what we, we want to emphasize today. God knows exactly what's going to happen. We, I guess we didn't read this part. Sorry about that. This is, this is more about Antiochus Epiphany. So let me just read it. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from this nation but will not have the same power. That's the four generals. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue will arise, and he will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. So that's talking about Antiochus. Who's this guy? They have coins with his name on it. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior, and when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Okay. So I want to make a couple points here. About the sovereignty of God. The Most High God is sovereign over the kingdom of men. God is absolute, eternal, the supreme value. You just say that again God is absolute, eternal, and the supreme value. Everything else is finite, dependent. And subject to him. Everything else has value because they are connected to him. Why does man have value? Why do we have value? It's because we're created in God's image. It's due to our connection to God himself. Not only this, but God has the power and the right to govern all things. And I think we all agree with that. God has the power and the right to govern all things. This is what we don't often believe. And he does so all the time without any exceptions. He does so all the time without any exceptions. Do you believe that? Do you look at the world the way it is, in the state that it's in now, and honestly acknowledge that God's in control of this. Sometimes that's, that's kind of hard to do. And there's no doubt that Satan is involved in uh, the rise of people like the Assyrian Babylonian kings, the rise of people like, you know, Hitler and Stalin and uh, Mao Zedong. But Satan can only do that with God's permission and only within divine limits. And if you don't believe that, read the first chapter of the book of Job because that's exactly what happened there. And if we look back at Daniel chapter 4, this is acknowledged. It says, The decision is announced by messengers. The Holy One declares the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and he sets over them the lowliest of people. Yeah, even when evil men are in power, God is sovereign, okay? And there's nothing that these men can do that will thwart God's plan. If We, if we see that in, in the Psalms. David wrote about it. He said, Why do the nations conspire and people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Also in Psalm 33, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever in the purposes of his heart through all generation. It always seems like earthly powers are so dominant and seem that they can't be challenged. But in the end, God is ultimately sovereign and victorious. And there's nothing that we as people can do to thwart the sovereignty of God. He has a plan, and he governs all things, and there's nothing that we do or don't do that can change that. God was revealing in chapter 8 what he was, was going to happen, and Daniel didn't have any, any hand in it at all. Being aware of God's sovereignty... I don't know what it does for you, but it gives me hope, right? It, we, often, we often perceive that the world is so messed up. And we, we fall into that trap, right? Don't we watch the news and we go, oh my gosh, did you see what happened on the news last night? Everything's going to hell in a handbasket, right? Do you ever think that the world, the situation that the world is in right now is the worst it's ever been? It can't get any worse, that if we, if we lose this one battle, that'll be the end of the world as we know it, right? You see this all the time. You see it in news. You especially see it during, uh, you know, election season. Man, if this guy gets into office, democracy is over. That's it. Or maybe we think it's the end of the church. If this happens, it's the end of the church or even Christianity because we can't fight against it. And the media tends to exacerbate that fear in us. And it's easy for us to get discouraged, right? Even if you don't believe that completely, it's easy to get discouraged, okay? We're like, we're like the people of Israel. They got discouraged too, right? They, might have, they must have felt this way many times in their history. Look at Isaiah 40. It said, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Don't you know? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting creator, the, the creator of the ends of the earth. He, he will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. When it seems like the world is so messed up, I like to think about WWJD. Remember those bands, right? They say WWJD, what would Jesus do? I'd like to, I'd like, I'd like to change it a little bit. I'd like to make it... W, D, J, D. What did Jesus do? Okay. Because remember when Jesus came to the earth, it was not paradise. When, When Jesus came down here, he placed himself right in the middle of war and suffering and evil. And what did he do? He didn't just snap his fingers and make it all go away. He could have. He didn't yell and scream in anger. He could have. And he certainly wasn't afraid. God didn't spare his only son for us, although he could have. Instead, what Jesus did was he he bore it. He came and he bore it, he suffered patiently. And he crushed sin permanently. Last week, Tom talked about the beasts in the world and in the future. It's going to get worse. So what's our job? Okay. Is it our job to yell and scream in anger? Or to be afraid and maybe hide ourselves away and dig a bunker and hide away? No, Jesus looks at us and he calls us to walk it out. To walk it out together. He gives us his Holy Spirit and the power to love when people are unlovable and pray when the situation seems hopeless. And We can be confident in the moment because the Lord's walked it out in the past and we can be confident about the future. He's going to be with us in the future. He is sovereignly in control of history and the future of mankind and, and the church, his people, the church, and that includes all of us. Right? Um, those of you, I, I, you know, I've spoken a couple times and there's a couple, there's a couple guys I always like to quote and no I'm not going to quote Lewis <laughs> although I like to quote Lewis I'm going to quote this guy um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer now just you might not be familiar with who this is this, he was a pastor in Germany during the 1930s and 1940s so during the reign of Hitler and ultimately, just before the end of the war, Hitler had him executed, because he stood up against Hitler's regime, and he said it was immoral, it was, it was not biblical. But he's got a bunch of books you can read if you're ever interested. So talk about a guy who lived in a time when he could honestly say, oh, things could not get any worse, right? During his time, things could not get any worse. But let me quote him in full. He said, I believe that God can and will let good come out of everything, even the greatest evil. And for that to happen, God needs human beings who let everything work out for the best. I believe that every moment of distress, God will give us as much strength to resist as we need. But it's not given to us in advance lest we rely on ourselves and not on God alone. In such faith, all fear of the future should be overcome. I believe that even our mistakes and shortcomings are not in vain, and it is no more difficult for God to deal with them than with our supposedly good deeds. I believe that God is no timeless fate, but waits for and responds to sincere prayer and responsible actions. A couple things he said. He said our mistakes and shortcomings are not in vain. That's good, because I make plenty of those, right? Being aware of God's sovereignty takes a huge burden off of me. Have you ever thought that there may have been something that you do or don't do that's gonna mess up God's plans? You ever thought that? I've often wondered if something I did kept somebody maybe from hearing the gospel and becoming a believer. And maybe my bad behavior might have turned somebody away from Jesus. And they're going to hell because of me. But knowing God that is completely in control takes away that condemnation, right? I can't mess up God's plans, his plans are, e- are going to go ahead even if I fail. My failures do not result in God failing. Okay. Bonhoeffer also says that God waits for and responds to sincere prayer and responsible actions. How amazing is that? This is the omniscient, omnipresent, never-changing creator of the universe, and he responds to the prayers of his people and the faithful actions of his people. So when we see the sin and stubbornness of the world around us, our society, what should be our first response? It should be prayer. We should be down on our knees praying. We sing a song here, and I love it. One of the lines is, so when I fight, I fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. Our response to evil and injustice needs to be a response of prayer, of saying to God, you're in control, this is your battle, I can't fight this. The response is opening our fists. Let's get our fists up there. The response is what? God is completely in control. God is completely in control. Let's do it in Spanish. You're going to have to do it. I, I'm lousy at it. Dios está completamente en control. And, what, and what's really cool about this is this is not the position of prayer, is it? This is the position of prayer. We have to release things. God's in control and then bow down and pray to him. So what does it mean For us to act faithfully in the context of being in a screwed up world and we see evil all around us, what again, what would Jesus have us do? He's called us to do one of the most difficult things ever love our enemies, okay? And that's the way of overcoming evil in our world. God has called us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Have you ever had to love an enemy? Never really had an enemy before, but a couple weeks ago, I was at work and I met, how do I describe her? She's one of the most unpleasant people I've ever met in my life. Really hard to love, but Jesus calls me to love her. There's gonna be a lot of people we disagree with who are around us, whose beliefs are contrary to ours. What do we do? Should we fight them? Should we debate with them? Should we respond to them with hate and antagonism? Because if we do that, it's gonna keep coming at us. Do you ever notice that when you feed something, it grows? When we feed something, it grows. Or it keeps coming back at us. If you have a cat that comes around to your house and you feed it, what do you got? You got a pet cat. (laughs) He's gonna keep going around. Because that's what happens. If we keep feeding hate Smashing windows, burning tires in response to the evil that's around us. It's that evil's going to keep growing in our hearts, and it's going to keep coming back. We're the children of God. We're called to be different. God calls us to be like Jesus and to love aggressively in a crazy, messed up world. Let's pray. God, this is a hard lesson You want us to love those around us even when things seem so messed up. And we need to spend more time on our knees, Lord, and having our hands open to you and allowing you to work in and through us. We we trust you. We know you're completely in control. And we pray in Jesus' name.